You know, every term, every single term, we, we have the death penalty cases coming up uh, in a far greater proportion than they are a percentage of our, our criminal cases. And it, it just shows that uh, there's a moral quandary on the whole subject of the death penalty. And I, I think it's an irreconcilable one. Uh, we try to be so careful. We try to be so careful and to uh, accord extreme uh, due process and repetitive hearings uh, in these cases, but it still seems that we just can't be sure that we're not executing innocent people. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for joining us. I'm Craig Williams from the very sunny Southern California. And this is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from, uh, usually from Massachusetts, but today I'm coming to you from a very sunny uh, St. Augustine, Florida. And Bob, I know you write a legal blog. I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. How about you? Yeah, I occasionally write a blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. At this point, we'd like to take time to thank our sponsors, Above All Legal, a new online job board for the legal community. You can find more about Above All Legal at AboveAllLegal.com. Clio, a web-based practice management software program for lawyers at GoClio.com. SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at SunTrust.com slash law. And Firm Manager from LexisNexis at MyFirmManager.com slash LTN. Craig, uh, we're just around the corner from the first Monday in October, uh, and uh, for Supreme Court watchers, that means the start of the new term. There are many cases on the horizon that uh, are sure to be of interest, and and it could even uh, rewrite uh, constitutional law for years to come. And from the highly publicized Fourth Amendment GPS tracking case, U.S. versus Jones, to the eyewitness identification case of Perry versus New Hampshire, to prisoner strip searches in Florence versus border freeholders, there are a variety of cases this term, more than enough to spark some controversy. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to spotlight the biggest cases of the upcoming term, the justices, and which cases will likely get the most attention. Uh, that's right. And to help us do that uh, today, we have a couple of guests. Uh, let me first introduce uh, a returning guest, uh, Attorney Amy Howe. Uh, Amy is, uh, uh, I guess, now full-time as editor of SCOTUS Blog, a website devoted to comprehensive coverage of the Supreme Court. She's taught Supreme Court litigation at Harvard and Stanford Law Schools and has served as counsel on a variety of cases uh, at the court. Uh just just this week, uh, uh, was it just this week or am I? <laughs> I'm lost in time. But uh, earlier this week, uh, SCOTUS Blog uh, revamped uh, their website and announced uh, a, a kind of an exciting new direction where they're going to have uh, exclusive sponsorship from from Bloomberg Law. Uh, and uh, Amy is going to be focusing her time as uh, as editor of SCOTUS Blog. So uh, encourage our listeners to check out scotusblog.com and uh, welcome to the show, Amy. Thanks for having me. It's always nice to be here. And Bob, our next guest is also a returning guest, Wilson Hewn, a C. Blake McDowell Jr. professor and constitutional law research fellow at the University of Akron School of Law. Professor Hewn posts regularly at akronlawcafe.ohio.com, which features essays by members of the Akron Law faculty. 
Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer, Professor Hewn. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. Amy, I wonder if we could ask you to, to kind of start, uh, you know, I, I, obviously a lot of our lawyer audience, a lot of our listeners are, are lawyers, but I'm not sure everybody understands exactly how, how the court goes through the process of deciding what cases it will hear. I mean, can you kind of walk us through how we get to this point in the term? Sure. What happens is that the party who loses in a lower court, usually the uh, federal intermediate appellate court, sometimes the, the state court of last resort, files what's called a petition for certiorari, outlining, that's a brief that outlines the reasons why the court should grant review, because the overwhelming majority of the court's docket is entirely discretionary. So then the other side, the side that prevailed in the lower court, has a chance to file a brief as well that explains to the Supreme Court why they shouldn't grant review. We call that a brief in opposition, um, followed up by a reply brief. And all of those briefs go to the justices, and in particular to their clerks, and the, the justices review them, and then the nine justices meet in a private conference. It's just the nine of them, and the junior justice has to answer the door and take the notes about what they're going to do with each case to talk about the cases and to vote on them. And then usually the, the, either the following day or the following week, the court will announce which cases it has granted. And so on Monday, they had a conference in which they looked at all of the petitions for certiorari that had come in and been briefed since the end of June, really, because they had not had a conference since before their summer recess. And that led to a list of orders on Tuesday morning uh, granting certiorari in eight cases. So those cases will be added to the court's docket and will be briefed and argued on the merits uh, this term between now and the end of April. And Professor Hewn, can you give us a little bit of a highlight about the kind of cases that we're going to be seeing this coming term? Well, there are a number of uh, very significant criminal cases coming down that you uh, outlined at the beginning of the program uh, uh, involving uh, the GPS devices and, and strip searches and uh, a, a number of cases dealing with uh, the right uh, of uh, defendants to the effective assistance of counsel. Uh, on the civil side, uh, I think the big one is the one that uh, is in the news today. Uh, it has been announced that uh, all of the parties really uh, want to appeal the decision of the 11th Circuit to the Supreme Court dealing with the constitutionality of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. And uh, that's one that certainly falls within the category you mentioned before of cases that may affect the interpretation of the Supreme Court for many years to come, in this case, uh, the Commerce Clause or uh, the Taxing Power under the General Welfare Clause. Uh, we've also got some uh, real interesting cases dealing with freedom of religion in the Hosanna Tabor case, a copyright case that uh, has some real interesting uh, First Amendment issues. Um, and uh, we've got a, a case dealing with a subject that doesn't come up all that often, the political question doctrine coming up on a question relating to foreign affairs. Uh, so it's the full docket already, and we're only about halfway there. Amy, what about from your, from your perspective? Uh, what are some of the cases that stand out to you that are coming up this term? Well, I think there's... There's a lot of interesting cases this term. This is a term, actually, that everyone has been anticipating for over a year. Last year, when we were talking about the, the term that was going to be starting in October of 2010, everyone kept saying, yes, but wait until next term. And so now it seems very, very likely that the court is, as, as Professor Hume said, going to take on health care. There are a couple of other very interesting cases that are 
in the pipeline, petitions for certiorari have been filed um, that the court is likely to grant and act on this term as well. One of them is the challenge to the controversial Arizona immigration law, SP 1070. And so that petition was filed a couple of months ago, in I believe in August, and so the justices will almost certainly act on that petition by the end of the year, and it could be briefed and argued before before the end of April. Another one that's, that could be one to watch that could be fascinating is affirmative action could be coming back to the court. There's been a challenge to the University of Texas's affirmative action policy that it uses in admissions. Um, the court just reviewed this issue relatively recently in 2003 in a case called Grutter versus Bollinger. Um, and in that case, it actually upheld a policy used by the University of Michigan's law school. It said that the, the law school could use race as a factor in admissions if it did so in a way that was narrowly tailored to further a compelling state interest in having a, 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 the benefits of a racially diverse student body. But since 2003, that, that decision in Greta versus Bollinger was by Justice, Sand, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Since 2003, of course, Justice O'Connor has retired and has been replaced by J- Justice Samuel Alito, who is much more conservative on these issues than, than she is. So we could see a real sea change in the court's affirmative action jurisprudence as, uh, as soon as the end of June of 2012. Well, let's take a look at some of the individual cases. Uh, Professor Hewn, is there something that sparks your interest that you'd like to talk about, one of those, one of the cases coming up? Well, the, the, uh, the health care bill has been one that I've been following for uh, really since its inception, since it was uh, introduced. And at first, uh, I don't think people really uh, considered that there was going to be a serious challenge to the constitutionality of uh, the Affordable Care Act. After all, we've got a lot of federal laws that are just routinely upheld uh, dealing with uh, health insurance and dealing with the delivery of health care like ERISA and uh, HIPAA and EMTALA, <laughs> virtually every other alphabetical acronym you can come up with, uh, a lot of federal regulation in the area. This is not an area that has been a traditional matter of state concern. This is not like the law that was involved in United States versus Lopez, or United States versus Morrison. Uh, typically, the time that a, a federal law might be questionable under the Commerce Clause is when it entrenches upon a, an area of traditional state power. And we don't see that in this case. This is uh, there are other reasons uh, why people are challenging the constitutionality of this law, uh, which means that it it, it has to it, they have to come up with uh, uh, novel arguments for saying that the law is unconstitutional. And, of course, this is possibly the most significant piece of legislation since Medicare. We we have to go back uh, 45 years to find a law that has the economic significance that this universal health care legislation does. So it's going to be a very, very significant opinion, both uh, legally and socially and politically, uh, for them to address this. And, Amy, what cases do you think, uh, what cases you want to highlight? One of the cases involves the Fourth Amendment. Um, the, the justices are big fans of the First, First Amendment, but at least five of them are significantly uh, less protective of the Fourth Amendment. It's a case called United, United States versus Jones involving GPS tracking and whether or not the government can put GPS track, put a GPS tracking device on a car, in this case without a warrant, and use it to track someone as they move around the neighborhood. 
And so this case uh, involves, uh, sort of follows up on a case that the court heard 20 years ago called United States versus Not. And in that case, the police put a beeper in a container and then put a container in the car and they used the electronic beeper to track a suspect as he went to his drug lab and they just used it for one trip for about 24 hours. Um, this case is sort of the United States versus Knotts gone high tech uh, because you now in, in United States versus Knotts, the police had to be within sort of beeping range of the beeper to track it. But in this case, the government put a, a GPS tracking device on the car of a suspected drug dealer and used it for 28 days. And they were able to you know, track him remotely from a computer everywhere that he went. And they gathered evidence. They tracked him to his stash house. And when they combined this with evidence of his phone calls, they discovered massive amounts of cash and cocaine uh, leading to a life sentence for Antoine Jones, the respondent in this case. And a rather libertarian panel of the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit threw out his sentence. It said that he had a reasonable expectation of privacy in his movements over the course of the month. Even if this was all out in public, you wouldn't expect that someone would follow you from place to place for an entire month. And so the police use of the GPS tracking device, the Court of Appeals said, was a search and you needed a warrant because the police didn't have a valid warrant the, the search violated the Fourth Amendment. The government's argument is, look, he was just driving around. We could, you've all seen the police stakeout shows, we could have just put a person on him to follow him around for 28 days, for 24 hours a day. This is just a high-tech way of doing the same thing. And so there are a couple of interesting threads that are intentioned in this case. The court has leaned toward a very narrow interpretation of the Fourth Amendment recently and are willing to give police a lot of leeway. But on the other hand, there may be some justices that regard this as a bit Orwellian, which is the term that a couple of courts have used. This idea that the police can track you without a warrant and without your knowledge from some remote computer. At least in the Knotts case, the police had to stay within range of the beeper. And the government has warned that this could have sort of significant ripple effects if it's not allowed to do this. What about extended photo surveillance? What about cases involving terrorism? And so I think it's going to be a very interesting case to watch closely. Another sort of thread that's in the mix is that this is not a court that likes to move decisively on issues of technology when the Constitution is involved. They're afraid of sort of getting too far out in front of the, of the technology. So I think it could be a really fascinating one to watch. Amy, I was wondering about this case. I, I think this is a area where you have a lot more expertise than I do, but but it, it, I was wondering, what about uh, just using satellite technology? What about other kinds of imaging technology that don't even involve putting a GPS uh, uh, tracker in the car, but just uh, an eye in the sky? Uh, do you think there could be any valid possible claim of a violation of a reasonable expectation of privacy if they were using um, enhanced uh, technology that we may have we may even have at the moment to track this movement. I, I think those are exactly the kind of questions that are going to come up at oral argument. And I think that in the end, the government, I'm, and I should say I'm not at all involved in this case, I think that the government is likely to win because I do think that the justices, you know, they're certainly concerned about their own personal privacy, but I think to the extent that you're talking about technology that is sort of looking at what's already in public, whether or not that is 
you know, a GPS tracking device that tracks your movements, you know, just in, in public places or satellites that track your movements in public places, they may be less concerned than they are with the different kinds of technology that allow police or law enforcement officers, you know, the military to see inside your home. For example, the, you know, heat-seeking devices that have been used by police in the past. One of the cases I was interested in is this uh, copy credit versus Greenwood, which I guess uh, addresses the issue of compulsory arbitration in a a consumer credit uh, agreement. And and you can correct me if, if I have that wrong, but uh, uh, Professor Hewitt, is that is that one you've looked at at all? And, and can you comment on that at all? I took a brief look at it. Uh, it is a case that is it does not stand alone. We've had a number of recent cases coming out of the Supreme Court dealing with the Federal Arbitration Act, and essentially you, you can look at this as being uh, in league with uh, some of these cases that are almost uh, trying to enact a kind of tort reform through the courts. You know, instead of having specific legislation uh, that says uh, that that, um, that says that uh, people have to arbitrate things, uh, we see them uh, up using the Federal Arbitration Act to allow companies to submit employment disputes or other kinds of uh, consumer uh, disputes to arbitration. And what it is is they are reading the Federal Arbitration Act fairly broadly uh, to say that. Uh, uh, it overrides uh, other rights that have been recognized um, for people to actually litigate their claims. The Ninth Circuit is resisting that uh, trend. Uh, they found that it was implicit in this consumer protection law uh, that people had a right to litigate these uh, kinds of complaints uh, dealing with their credit. Um, but uh, the Supreme Court has uh, taken this case, and uh, given the recent cases, there's a real chance that they could uh, force consumers to arbitrate these kinds of disputes. We have to take a short break right now, and I, I hope you'll all stay with us. I, I, I have to do something a little bit unusual, which is, unfortunately, I, I have to leave the program at this point, and, and, and Craig uh, will continue with the program. But I, I'd like to just take this opportunity before I sign off to, to thank the two of you for taking the time to be with us today. Uh, and uh, when we return from break, uh, we will have more from uh, Professor Wilson Hewn and uh, Amy Howe from SCOTUS Blog. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in less than, in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. 
SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Thanks for tuning into our program today. We want to let you know about something extraordinary happening in the legal industry. Right now, hundreds of independent attorneys just like yourself are working to bring a very special product to market. These attorneys are part of a development program at LexisNexis, and they are working under NDA on a brand new application that will change the way you run your practice. This solution, LexisNexis Firm Manager, is a web-based, highly secure application operating in SAS-70 Type 2 attested data centers. If you are interested in test driving LexisNexis Firm Manager at no charge, or to learn more, visit www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. This is Kay Kenny at Legal Talk Network, and I'm talking with attorney Mimi Manginis, co-founder of Above All Legal, a new online job board for the legal community. Mimi, tell us about Above All Legal and how it works. Sure. Above All Legal is an online job board that connects legal professionals uh, with top-notch law firms of all sizes, as well as corporate legal departments. The AAL process is fast and it's simple. Candidates can place their profile and resumes for free, and then they can search and apply for jobs that are specific to their geographic preferences and job category. Also, for a fraction of the price of other job boards, employers can post jobs and can search our extensive resume database according to their selective criteria. We've been talking to attorney Mimi Manginis, co-founder of Above All Legal. Check it out at AboveAllLegal.com. That's AboveAllLegal.com. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial playing in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're joined today by attorney Amy Howe, who is the now permanent editor of scotusblog.com, and Will Hewn, a C. Blake McDowell Jr. professor and constitutional law research fellow at the University of Akron School of Law. Well, there are, there are a couple of big issues that remain. Uh, we've talked about some of them, health care law, and, and uh, there's also Martell versus Claire, which is uh, a case regarding a state death row inmate whether they're entitled to receive a new court-appointed lawyer when he alleges that his first court-appointed counsel was not pursuing important evidence. Yeah, it was actually, I think that was the one where it was his first court-appointed uh, counsel. It was on on the, uh, his first counsel from the uh, post-conviction relief uh, situation. No, I, I, I'm not thoroughly acquainted with this, but, you know, every term, every single term, we, we have the death penalty cases coming up uh, in a far greater proportion than they are a percentage of our uh, criminal cases, and it it just shows that uh, there's a moral quandary on the whole subject of the death penalty. And I, I think it's an irreconcilable one. Uh, we try to be so careful. We try to be so careful and to uh, accord extreme uh, due process and repetitive hearings uh, in these cases, but it still seems that we just can't be sure 
that we're not executing innocent people. And so we see the court uh, going through, going to these extremes uh, to review these cases and to ensure due process. Uh, but in the end, um, the reality is we can't be sure. And uh, I, I think that's a matter where uh, we still have not uh, faced up to the fact that a lot of other countries have abolished the death penalty. Uh, this is why we're seeing this litigation. And, and Amy, there are some cases on the docket, I think, regarding same-sex marriage. Can you tell us about those? Well, these are cases, I think, that that are primarily uh, sort of coming up through the, the pipeline. One of the cases right now that is still at the petition for certiorari stage is a case called Adar versus Smith, and it's about whether or not Louisiana violates the uh, Equal Protection Clause, I believe, in failing to recognize both halves of a same-sex couple as parents on a birth certificate. Uh, We thought that perhaps we might have the Proposition 8 case at the court this term. At At this point last year, it seemed like that might well be a possibility because the U.S. District Judge uh, Vaughn Walker had thrown out Proposition 8 as unconstitutional. But then after the Ninth Circuit heard oral argument on the appeal, it sort of got sidetracked uh, down that, you know, the Ninth Circuit certified a question to the California Supreme Court about whether or not the defenders of Prop 8 have standing to defend the statute if state officials aren't going to do so. And so the California Supreme Court has now heard our oral argument and is supposed to issue its decision within two or three months. But it, it, And so the issue could very well still come to the Supreme Court, but it's not at all clear whether or not it's going to come anytime soon. Amy, I wonder what your bottom line is on that. Uh, do you think the Supreme Court, and by the Supreme Court I mean Anthony Kennedy, uh, is, the, is Kennedy ready to recognize a fundamental right to same-sex marriage, do you think? You know, I think that it's possible that he will. I think that the people who... Uh, you know, are pushing the same-sex marriage battle through the courts, the, you know, the, the, the community that, that wants same-sex marriage to be legal are probably not that disappointed that there's been this delay because, you know, the Supreme Court is nine people who are, you know, out and out, you know, on a day-to-day basis going about their business just like the rest of us and you know, they're very smart people, but they're not completely sort of out of touch with public opinion. And, you know, polls show that literally every year there's more and more support for same-sex marriage among the American public, particularly as, you know, young people sort of grow up and they're they're just more accustomed to seeing same-sex couples and and now to seeing same-sex marriages and same-sex families. Um, And so I do think that the longer this takes from from their perspective, the better it will be. I, you know, I do think it will probably come down to Justice Anthony Kennedy. And I do think that in the end, you know, he's likely to likely to rule in favor of same-sex marriage. Yes. Well, we also have a case, uh, a First Amendment case out there on the horizon, uh, FCC versus Fox Television Studios. There's been a bit of a flap over fleeting expletives. <laughs> um, and uh, partial nudity like, on like, NYPD like what, Craig? Blue. Like, like, what, like what kind of fleeting expletives? Uh, that was well, I don't. I don't know that. Yeah, I don't know that there's such a thing as a fleeting expletive. It's either uh, something that you say or something that you don't say. I'm not going to say any here on the air. But um, where do you see the t- upcoming term dealing with uh, first uh, amendment cases, and maybe perhaps this one? Uh, the only one I'm aware of right now is the Golan versus Holder one. The only one that's been accepted. 
And that's going to be an extraordinarily difficult case uh, with uh, a situation where there were works by foreign authors where the copyright had lapsed or, or really never really applied. And uh, these were uh, books and movies and pieces of music that were in the public domain and anybody could use them and people started to rely on that, teaching about them uh, or, or performing these things. And uh, then we uh, signed an agreement with foreign countries. We, we entered it as part of our uh, treaties. We said, no, we're going to recognize a copyright in these foreign works. And the allegation is, and it's really a very interesting one, uh, does it violate the First Amendment to slap the copyright protection back onto works that were already in the public domain? Does that interfere in some way with the, the freedom of people to use specific works? Or is this a situation where the only thing that's really protected is ideas and, and not uh, access to specific uh, works expressing those ideas? Very, very interesting case. I do think the, the FCC versus Fox case will be fun to watch as well. The court last term was, and the, and the term before it, has been very, very protective of the First Amendment. And so the FCC versus Fox case, this is actually the second go-round for the court involving the, the fleeting expletives policy. The FCC's policy is that fleeting expletives can, could be indecent depending on the context and so the incidents that are involved, and this shows you how long that this case has been kicking around, include NYPD Blue, some nudity on, on that show, and that show actually went off the air over six years ago. And so in the first go-round at the court, the court said that this FCC policy fell within the agency's authority, but didn't say whether or not the policy was constitutional. And so they went back down to the lower courts, and the lower court Says, said that the policy was unconstitutional because it's too vague. Broadcasters are going to have to guess about whether or not something is unconstitutional. And as I said, generally the courts have been very reluctant to curb speech. The FCC's indecency policy is premised on the idea that we can't have these things on television because we need to protect children. Um, which was a very similar argument that the state of California made last term in the violent video games case. They said, you know, we need to make sure that these very violent video games, you know, which, you know, as they said at oral argument, can involve characters on the video games being decapitated and set on fire. So we need to keep these out of the hands of children. Um, and the court did not buy into that argument as all, at all. So, it will be fun to watch whether or not they're at all moved by this argument about protecting children in the context of fleeting expletives, which are arguably less disturbing than, than video game characters being decapitated, uh, being on television. Well, we talked a little bit about Justice Kennedy being one of the swing votes on the same-sex marriage issue. Are there any other justices that will have an important role to play this, this coming term? Well, in the health care case, uh, a lot of us are going to be watching Justice Antonin Scalia. You know, Scalia is normally aligned with uh, the conservative wing of the court, uh, but uh, if not the leader. But uh, he isn't particularly strong on state sovereignty rights, at least not historically. Uh, Justice O'Connor was, uh, but uh, she is not on the court now. So it's going to be very interesting to see how Justice Scalia votes in the health care case. Uh, he's also on record uh, in, in the uh, medical marijuana case. He made a very strong argument for Congress's power to adopt laws under the Necessary and Proper Clause, uh, saying that they could adopt uh, a law 
that is essential to a comprehensive scheme of federal regulation, even if that law wasn't in and of itself necessarily regulating commerce. So it's going to be uh, very, very interesting to see what he does in that particular case. Amy, any justices you think we should be on the lookout for? You know, I think that just the Chief Justice will actually be interesting to watch if the affirmative action case does come to the court. I mean, his, you know, I think sympathies would clearly be with the challengers to the affirmative action policy, and he certainly voted that way in cases involving sort of race and school districting. He very famously wrote a line in an opinion that said something like, you know, the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. Um, it will be it will be interesting to see as if as the you know as the chief justice whether or not the court in fact goes sort of takes the next step and really you know guts the court's prior affirmative action decisions which are not particularly old or whether or not he seeks some sort of intermediate step that perhaps at least in theory leaves the decision intact but but whittles away at it. Good. Well, we've just about reached the end of our program, and it's time to wrap up and get your final thoughts and your contact information. So, Will, let's start with you, and perhaps you could give us a little bit of a preview about whether we're expecting any changes on the Supreme Court this year. Well, uh, of course, for years there was uh, speculation about Justice Ginsburg's health, and um, I, but I think that's true of any one of us, isn't it? Uh, we never know if we'll be here at the end of the day. Uh, A lot of it uh, will depend, of course, on the future makeup of the Supreme Court on the results of the 2012 election. That's one of the most important things that we Americans do every four years, is that we help chart the future of the Constitution. In fact, the American people almost interpret the Constitution uh, through their votes in presidential elections. Good. And can we also get your contact information for our listeners in case they might want to reach out to you? Uh, W. Hewn. Uh, at uacron edu. That's u-a-k-r-o-n dot e-d-u. And also to remind our listeners, Professor Hune writes on com as well. Amy, can we also get your final thoughts and contact information? Sure. I think that Professor Hune is correct. I don't think anyone is going to go anywhere on the court voluntarily anytime soon. Justice Ginsburg has said uh, in response to some subtle and not so subtle suggestions that she should perhaps consider retiring to allow President Obama to appoint her successor, she has said that she wants to stay at least as long as Justice Brandeis, who served until he was 82. So that would have her retiring sometime perhaps around 2015. And I don't think any of the other justices are going to retire voluntarily before then either. Um, this is going to be, I think, now that we know that health care is almost certainly going to be briefed and argued at the court and decided by the end of June, this is really going to be one of the blockbuster terms in recent memory. And it's all going to happen in the sort of crucible of the 2012 presidential election. And so I think that it's going to generate a lot of discussion about the court and about the court's role in the three branches of government but also, you know, I think perhaps could make a difference in the presidential election itself if, if people sort of internalize the idea, if they're satisfied or dissatisfied with, with what's going on at the court, internalize the idea that their votes for president you know, not only affect 
who the president is, but also who is nominated to the Supreme Court in making these crucial decisions. Great. Well, thank you both very much, Professor Wilson Hune and Amy Howe, the editor at SCOTUS Blog, for being on our show today and discussing this important upcoming Supreme Court term. For our listeners, remember you can get all of your CLD credits through West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts. You can go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. You can also find all Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes. And we'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.